I'd like to read a poem before we break. It's about storms. It's by Rainer Maria Rilke. It's called Unto a Vast Plain. You are not surprised at the force of the storm. You have seen it growing. The trees flee. Their flight sets the boulevards streaming. And you know, he whom they flee is the one you move toward. All your senses sing him as you stand at the window. The weeks stood still in summer. The tree's blood rose. Now you feel it wants to sink back into the source of everything. You thought you could trust that power when you plucked the fruit. Now it becomes a riddle again, and you again a stranger. Summer was like your house. You know where each thing stood. Now you must go out into your heart as unto a vast plain. Now the immense loneliness begins. The days go numb. The wind sucks the world from your senses like withered leaves. Through the empty branches, the sky remains. It is what you have. Be earth now and evensong. Be the ground lying under the sky. Be modest now, like a thing ripened until it is real so that he who began it all can feel you when he reaches for you. So we'll take a five-minute break. You can stretch, you can walk, you can um, take a bathroom break, but please do it in silence, and we'll come back. I'll ring the bell in about five minutes. So I wanted to, um, I read you a poem. Now I'm going to read you another story, a story. <clears throat> uh, it's, it's not a story, actually. It's a, it's a piece that was uh, originally offered by a, a principal at a high school uh, at a graduation talking about community. And I think for tonight where... Uh, we have these storms of elections and hurricanes and northeasters and all sorts of things coming in, you know, to, to, to mix and uh, bring us the, the worldly dharmas, the worldly storms, that it's really important to think about the refuge of Sangha, that the, the Buddha invited us to take refuge in in the Buddha, which is our the possibility of our own awakening, the Bodhi mind and heart, and the Dharma, the way things are, or the actual teachings that we study and put into practice. But the third jewel is sometimes the most difficult in which to take our refuge, and probably the least thought about um, of the three jewels. But it really is the one that um, supports us most tangibly, especially in times that are difficult. And we have had a very difficult time. And even if you were personally um, untouched by the hurricane, maybe you didn't lose power, maybe you had all the heat you needed and the steam that you needed and all the food that you needed and all of your family and friends were safe. And yet, all around you, there is difficulty and devastation. And to remember that we are not here by ourselves, 
that we can do all the meditating we want to do and contemplate our navels as much as we want. And yet, we are here together on this small planet. We're here together in the midst of all of these worldly winds that come. The Buddha taught about eight worldly winds. He said there's gain and loss and pleasure and pain and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. And these worldly winds are constantly blowing through our lives. And so when we get a storm, as we did, what a name, Sandy. Sounds so harmless, doesn't it? But when we get a storm like that blowing through our lives, it, perhaps, it certainly reminded me of all of the storms that we have weathered. And it led me to think about what helps our resilience, what helps us to bounce back from difficult times. And one of the most important things that does help us to bounce back is the support that we get from each other. So I, um, I remembered this, this little uh, talk that uh, a man named Chris Brown, who is the principal of the Holy Rosary School, gave. He said, this fall, when you see geese heading south for the winter, flying along in V formation, you might be interested to know what science has discovered about why they fly that way. It has been learned that as each bird flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the bird immediately following. By flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds at least 71% greater flying range than if each bird flew on its own. Then he said, people who share a common direction and sense of community can get where they are going quicker and easier because they're traveling on the thrust of one another. Whenever a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and resistance of trying to go it alone and quickly gets back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front. He said, if we have as much sense as a goose, we will stay in formation with those who are headed the same way we are going. When the lead goose gets tired, he rotates back in the wing and another goose flies points. It pays to take turns doing the hard jobs with people or with geese flying south. The geese honk from behind to encourage those up front to keep up their speed. What do we say when we honk from behind? Finally, now I want you to get this, when a goose gets sick or is wounded by gunshots and falls out, two geese fall out of formation and follow it down to help and protect it. They stay with the goose until it is either able to fly or until it has died. They then launch out on their own or with another formation to catch up with their group. If we have the sense of a goose, we will stand by each other like that. So on this election night, it's helpful to think about that. Think about the state of our country and, well, first of our city of our state, the states next door to us, all the people in it, the state of our world, the fragility of the economy that needs us all to be flying in the same direction. I heard a very um, alarming statistic the other day, which is that Four years ago, when Barack Obama was elected president, 48% of the people in the United States said that they had um, racial prejudice. There was a poll recently taken, and now it's 51%. So we have a lot of work to do. We have 
alarming rates of incarceration, a fragile economy, a fragile world, an ecologically um, close to devastated um, condition. And it all comes from our greed, our hatred, and our delusion. We know that we've, because we've studied ourselves. And our practice doesn't invite us to be separate from all of that. It invites us to understand our connection, our inevitable, inexorable, and unbreakable connection that we have with each other. Zen Master Dogen said, to study the Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to become intimate with the 10,000 things. So we're asked in our practice to become intimate with everything in our world, not to feel separate from it, not to think that we are um, apart from it, not to become discouraged by the state of it, but to ask how we can support it and what it takes, how we use this precious teaching, how we use this, these precious, wonderful understanding and wisdom and compassion that we cultivate when we sit here and follow the breath and become intimate with the present moment, how we take that into life what we need to do to support our world, to support our community, and to not see those two things as separate, but that the supporting of our world and our community is very much a part of our practice. And our practice is what supports us in being able to contribute, and contribute in a way that's deep, that's profound, that changes that shifts the greed, hatred, and delusion in our own hearts, and therefore shifts the greed, hatred, and delusion of all of humanity because we are not apart from it. And so we can contemplate on, a, on this night when we don't know the outcome of anything. We can contemplate what is... Um, what is valuable, what is true, what is important in our, in our world, in our lives, in our practice. So, as you know, on these evenings, I like to hear what's on your minds and to see if we can have some inquiry or some discussion about what's happening for you. So please. Yes. Could you give me your name first? Xenia. Um, I found myself in the odd position today. Um, I'm not used to being in that position at least. Somebody sicked me out um, at the place of my work and uh, basically it was a feeling that he was asking me for advice. And this is a person from my recent past. I've been recently dismissed from one school for various reasons, and uh, I chose not to share it with people because I'm trying to reapply, and uh, it's a personal matter, and I didn't feel like sharing it with this particular person this instance. But he was talking about intimate dealings with the school, and um, I pointed out that he should be going to his teacher. I'm sorry? He, that he should be going to his teacher in this matter, who happens to be still my teacher, but just we're not involved through the school right now. And um, my, my teacher warned me not to give people advice. And I find myself in a position where people frequently ask me for it. 
And on one side, I have a compassion to answer. And on the other side, I find myself being reluctant to answer. Basically, I want to help, but I don't, I don't want to answer. I feel that people should be able to find answers on their own, the way I did. Because otherwise, it wouldn't help them in the long run. So, and now I have to sit down and decide what to email my teacher about this particular <laughs> incident. Because he will find out sooner or later, and I better tell him ahead of time. Do you have a question? The question is, I'm, I'm going to find myself in this position again. It's how do I act if that repeats itself? I don't know. Because even people who used to teach me come to me for advice, and I honestly don't know what to say sometimes. So is it possible to say you don't know what to say? I know what to say, I just <laughs> don't want to say it. So is it possible to say I don't want to say? They want my advice even more, and it's a vicious circle. <laughs> mm. Damned if you do, damned if you don't mm. situation. Mm -hmm. And I know you probably have been in this position, so I could definitely use advice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to advise you. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, it, well, it sounds, first of all, that it, whatever the whatever your I don't know all of your situation and all of your circumstances. Maybe I'm overthinking it. That's possible. Sorry? Maybe I'm overthinking it. That's it's possible. possible. Yeah, it's possible that you just need to um, express exactly where you are. Truthfulness is always a really amazing um, strategy. <laughs> My response was, why are you talking to me? Why are you not talking to the person who makes a yeah, decision? But that's not really helpful. What's really helpful is to understand your, your situation in a truthful way and be truthful with whoever you speak to. And that, that's a kind of general guideline, whether it's about advice or it's about anything else. Well, currently I'm suspended from the school. That my official status is being kicked out. That's my official status. I'm trying not to get on my teacher's bad side because I'm planning to reapply in three weeks. It's a really bad timing for this to happen. So, you know, this sounds like a personal um, dilemma rather than a dharma dilemma. So it might be helpful for you to speak to someone who really understands your situation well. Well, I intend to email my teacher and tell him what happened because mm. technically the whole thing was not my fault. The person mm. sick me out. Mm. Yeah. And I feel I did the right thing by pointing out that I should not be the person he's talking to. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible dilemma. But people do actually come to me for advice, mm -hmm. and if I do give them advice, I give them a solution, they don't think through the process, mm -hmm. they don't learn. Basically, I give them yeah. the answer to the midterm question. I shouldn't be doing that. Thanks. Hi, Gina. Hi. Um, I'd be very curious to get your thoughts on uh, prayer in Buddhism and what it means to to you and how you you find that how that works. So, can you define prayer for me? Well, that's. Really, one of the things is is finding a way to define it. Um, 
I, I think that each person has to define it for themselves. For, How do you for define my, it? I, I would think that it's communicating and connecting with something that one feels is greater than themselves or a greater part of oneself. So what would that be for you? Well, for myself, it, I, I hate to use the term uh, dharmakaya or Buddha nature because it's just so easy to throw a term out, but uh, I would think that it's that, that innate wisdom that we all have, that, that, uh, that goodness that's with inside, I believe, which is inside all people, and that innate goodness of the world itself. Uh, and either, even goodness is not the right word, uh, because then it, you, know, you have goodness and badness, and it's all part of it. So it, it's hard to, it's very difficult to define, other than something uh, larger than the small self. Uh, I don't look at it in terms, in, as, as a Buddhist, that there is some sp- spirit that is uh, looking down upon us and taking notes and that we can petition for a favor. But, um, you know, ex- there is an expression of, of gratitude that I find to be fulfilling uh, and even a way of reminding myself of what values that uh, I aspire to, uh, even if it's just in that. And I think, you know, for myself... So, <laughs> so how would you pray to that? How would I, how, how would I pray to that? Mm-hmm. I, I find that some of the, the gathas and, and the, the chants that we have in this tradition uh, address it, and they touch my heart in many ways. And... Mm-hmm. and um, uh, any any uh, expression of gratitude, whether it be a bow or, or verbalized uh, uh, for any of the three jewels or, or just the beauty of, of this world uh, and, and noting it or even just that, you know, we have electricity and that there's heat and, you know, these things that we, we so often take for granted uh, or even that, you know, I can get up and see and wake up to another day. Uh, but then there's the, the, the prayer of, of, of there's one prayer of acknowledging what is which I find to be important but the, the prayer of, of for others and that wish for others to, to, to be happy and, and to be free uh, and to pray with them connect with them and, and, and I just I, I kind of like wonder if there's something going on beyond just <laughs> talking to someone but it need not be if, if, that, if just that, that verbal expression of those thoughts to another being and mm-hmm. acknowledging that it, I think maybe is sufficient so what's your question now? I think I answered it <laughs> <laughs> thank you I knew you were going to do that. So. <laughs> Hi. Uh, my name is Onika, and I don't have a question. I have a comment, okay. which you might want to comment on or not. Okay. Um, so one of the things that's coming up for me and has been for a while um, is I'm I've been feeling for the last year or so that everything that I um, am attached to or are identified with is crumbling. Um, and in some ways, that's really traumatizing. In other ways, I hope it will eventually be liberating. Um, most recently, I broke my arm last week. And right before that, I remember... <laughs> looking in the mirror at my beautifully sculpted arms and all of the yoga that I do and just thinking how joyous and happy I was about where I've come with my practice and then literally that day I broke my arm. Mm. That's just one of many examples. 
Um, and I think that where I've come to with this um, is that I need not, I need to learn how to hold things without grasping them. Um, and I think that this tradition is, has been helpful in that realization, um, just how I can be appreciative and grateful for things without um, becoming so identified with them um, that I crumble when they do. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was actually uh, raising my hand after you spoke about prayer because um, we were teaching yesterday with some young people, uh, some boys, 14th in a uh, juvenile detention center and one of them said I don't believe in yoga and I don't believe in meditation and he said I believe so we, you know what do you believe in I believe in energy and it started a conversation so we, we promised the next time we came we would talk about belief and it occurred to me that I don't know how to talk about belief um, and it's that whole it, it's prayer you know the, some words like faith belief and prayer are so braided with religion mm -hmm. um, and other than me that it's hard to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do some. Re I'm going to do some reading. But since I, you at, since I'm in a position <laughs> to ask my teacher, how do you talk about belief? So you know what's really interesting is that when the um, when the texts, the, a lot of the Buddhist texts that we now read and that we kind of take for granted right now. And we take for granted in the form of language that, we, that we've, we've read them in. A lot of them were, um, were translated in the early 20th century, the late 19th century. And they were translated by, by Christians mostly. You know, perhaps there were people from, there were also Jewish people, but I think mostly Christians who had gone to Asia and you know became enthralled with with buddhism and so and a lot of their translations have been are in very christian through christian lens and in christian um in christian language such as enlightenment which is you know nibbana is not enlightenment is not a good translation for nibbana right but it, but it, it has some um, Christian undertones and overtones from the Age of Enlightenment. So a lot of our, a lot of the ways in which we view the Dharma, are through Christian lens because necessarily the language that's come at us has been through that. And yet, one of the things that was is most important in terms of distinguishing the Dharma from the Judeo-Christian um, you know, set of core beliefs is that the Buddhists basically in his, um, in his discourse to the Kalamas, he, he went to a, um, through a town and there were, there were these people who said to him, you know, a lot of teachers come through this town and now you come and you, know, and you have your own shiny language and your own shiny teaching and you're asking us to believe you. And you know, what's up with that? You know, we got this teacher, we got, I'm sure they didn't say it that way, but you know, we've got this teacher, we've got that teacher, they're saying this, this one's saying that, you're saying this, they're saying that, you know, who are we to believe? And the Buddha said, none of us. He essentially said, you, when someone teaches you something or when you hear a teaching, put that teaching into practice. That's the key. Is, is not, of course, it's, it's necessary to have some cognitive or, con, or conceptual constructs to understand what is being taught. But that, that's the beginning. And the real core or the real meat or the real middle of the practice is the actual practice of putting these things into practice. And then he said, and when you see for yourself that this is wholesome, then adopt that. When you see for yourself that this is unwholesome, 
then let that go so that you are constantly putting, the, putting whatever teachings you hear through, the, um, through the, the, the strainer of your own experience. So you're not asked to believe anything. What you're asked to do is to listen, to listen to a set of concepts, to a set of ideas, because that's, how we, that's what we have. That's the best that we have in terms of communicating with each other what we see of this life, how we see this life, what we, what we understand of our experience. We communicate that through words, through ideas, through concepts, and so a cognitive conceptual framework is necessary. But that cognitive conceptual framework is not a set of beliefs. It's a set of ideas to describe our experience. And if, so if you see that your experience, when you put these into effect, resonates, then of course, adopt it. When you see that it doesn't resonate or, or it doesn't yet, um, it, doesn't, it isn't yet true for you, then let it go. Or if you see that it's wholesome and that it's skillful, then of course put it into effect. If you see that it's unwholesome or unskillful, then of course let it go. So that if you're, if you're talking to someone about the Dharma or you're trying to, to uh, explain something about the Dharma and they say, I don't believe that, say, okay, that's fine. Let it go. It's not a problem, right? But, but don't let it go so quickly if you've, if you've not tried it, if you've not experienced it. If, you, if it rings any kind of a bell, then, let, then put it into put it into practice and see how it is for you, right? Hi, thank you so much. Um, so I'm a teacher and I'm a little apprehensive because I'm going to be around my students tomorrow and they're at the young age of nine. And I know that my higher-ups will have advice as to what to say to them. Your what? My, my boss. Your, and uh-huh. Yeah, we'll have Your advice what to say and what not to say. But I was just curious if Buddha was here, what he would advise me to do. <laughs> I haven't got the faintest idea what he would okay. advise you to do. That's what I thought. But I can, I can tell you what I would advise you to do. <laughs> um, listen. That's what I wanted to do, so that's great. And is there... You know, do I just let it naturally, organically end? You know, because I'm sure they're all going to be about normalcy and routine, and I'm really grateful to hear that because that's what my intuition was telling me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just to let them talk yeah, and share their you experiences. Don't know, you don't know, um, you know, the extent to which people have been traumatized. You don't know the extent to which... Um, they need somebody to talk to, to express what's, what they're feeling. Um, yeah, and, how do, and so there's a question about how we learn. How do we learn? You know, and some people learn by reading, some people learn kinesthetically, some people learn by hearing, some people learn by seeing. So, you know, there are a lot of different ways of learning. And so as a teacher, you know, the, the, the more you understand the complexity and the multiplicity of, of the ways in which people learn, the more responsive you can be. But you can't know that without listening and observing. And isn't that what we're learning when we practice, is how to observe, right? Because in, in practice, we need the thing that's observed, right? That's the first thing. And then we need the observer, and then we need the observing, <laughs> right? So we, you know, sometimes we forget that we need that third thing. So the observed, we know the breath, we know we're here observing the breath, but we forget that we're supposed to be observing, right? So the, so the listening is a, is a way of observation and the listening with presence is a rare thing, right? And people know when they're, when they're receiving that and they know when they're not receiving it, right? So, 
you'll know what to do if you can really listen with presence deeply, listen really deeply with presence. Okay, uh, first, thank you so much. I was curious if you might speak, oh, oh, Cynthia, thank you, uh, speak to how you would advise someone to work with um, understanding and skillfully handling judgment along with preconceived notions, even if they tend to be of a liberal or progressive persuasion. But how do you come to understand uh, one's judgments that inform one's view of and relationship to reality? I'm not sure I understand the question. It, it feels like there are about three questions in there, so can you just sure. so take them apart? Maybe judgment, and is judgment ever something that could be skillful or wise? Mm-hmm. Um, so could you tell me what, can you tell me why you ask? Okay, so I'm thinking in terms of the political context, and you mentioned one uh, issue, uh, say mass incarceration, right, in terms of um, you know, um, disparate sentencing and, and so forth. And so I know that would point to a lot of uh, political uh, inequities. Uh, and um, I guess what I was trying to ask in terms of thinking about judgment is I find myself in work as well as personal life assessing who I judge to be safe and per- perhaps even a judgment of who's good based on what I perceive their politics to be and how I sort of assess those politics as tied to a sense of compassion and wisdom. And so I'm wondering, sometimes it feels okay, and other times, you know, like, you don't want to be in a room with Republicans who are willingly suggesting they're racist or, you know, maybe encouraging... Uh, um, you know, unethical or yeah. So, so are there any Republicans in the room? Please feel free to put your hand up because you're welcome here if you're here. Sorry, sorry. On some issues, okay. So, um, you know, I. Because and the reason I did that is not to not for any reason other than when we're in Dharma communities, we we tend to assume that everybody believes the same things that we believe, that everybody has you know the same ideas or that we are one in our political persuasions, etc. And so we tend to talk about people as other. And so, if so, so we tend to put people into a place of shaming or into a place of feeling as if it's not okay to be who they are or to believe what they believe. And yet, if you if you really sit and listen, what you'll find is there's probably a lot of commonality with people who have completely different political persuasions than you do. But what did the Buddhists start out by saying? Everybody wants to be happy. But what happened on the night of his enlightenment was that as he, as he awakened, what he saw was that truth, that everybody wants to be happy. And yet he saw the suffering of beings, that, that beings were going from lifetime to lifetime, what he called the round of samsara and that the the reason for that is that we were most of us do exactly the opposite of what it takes for us to be happy and tears of 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 sorrow fell down his cheek right so that the first thing that we have is compassion and not co- and compassion isn't condescending and it's not pity and it's not thinking I'm superior to this, to this other being for whom I have compassion. But it's a recognition of the, of the sorrow and the suffering of every being 
who takes on a, a, a human life, a human body. So we start there. We start with compassion for the suffering and the sorrow of every being who lives. Every being who lives. And the recognition that we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to be happy. And yet, it, we disagree. <laughs> we disagree on how that's going to happen, right? And so we may have some discernment and some idea and some belief, as Angela was asking about belief, about what it takes to be happy. And what, you know, if we go around this room, everybody will say something slightly different maybe, right? So can we start there with the commonality that we all want to be happy and we all have different ideas about it? Every single one of us, we all have different ideas. And can we find that place of commonality where we understand suffering because we're all practitioners together and so we start with the Four Noble Truths. We always start with the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering, that there's a cause of that suffering, there's an origination, there's a way it originates in every single human being. And that origination is the clinging mind, the mind that clings to views, to opinions, that clings to ideas, that, cling, that has lust and desire for certain sensual pleasures, some ideas, some ways of wanting to be and of wanting to become. And can we also agree that if we abandon that clinging mind, that there can be a cessation of that suffering? And can we agree that, that, that the way that, that we can get to the, the abandonment of that clinging is by walking a particular kind of path of wisdom and integrity and the cultivation of the mind and heart. And if we can start from there and start from what we have in common, not from what our differences are, then we have something to talk about, right? And so the, the discernment of how we're going to abandon suffering or abandon the, the cause of suffering is, uh, comes from, from some wisdom, from some reflection, from some understanding of the predicament we're all in when we take on this body. Right? And then, so we understand that we're at one with that. But then we also understand that there's a complexity and a diversity of manifestations of that of this human life and can we respect that can we respect the diversity that brings the differences for each and every being that's here so that we all come from different backgrounds different ethnic backgrounds different cultures different um, capabilities some of us are artists some of us are scientists some of us are engineers some of us are um, you know are are people who are inclined to serve. We all have different proclivities and different talents and different ways of being in the world. And we have different parents and different siblings and different uh, teachers and different um, economic means and all kinds. The multiplicity and the diversity of this world is absolutely beautiful. But we take it to, be, to mean that everyone else is other, that their differences set us apart rather than bring us together. And if we start from that, then we can listen to each other. And yeah, we may not like other somebody else's ideas about how we need to get there, but can we, can we listen to it and respect it just as much as we would expect that for ourselves? Right? And, and we're entitled to not like what somebody else believes. We're entitled to that. That's okay. But, can we, but in that not liking, can we also understand where that not liking is coming from? Right? 
Because if we can understand where that not liking is coming from, then we don't believe it. Right? It's when, it, what's the, um, that saying from Banke, who was a, um, a Zen master, he said, don't side with yourself. Don't side with yourself. Right? That's probably the most dangerous thing we can do, is side with ourselves. So it's a, there's a complexity here, and it's a beautiful question that you ask. It's a beautiful question, because it's something that we all struggle with, right? But, we, but, it's, and, but it doesn't have a simple answer. There, it's not like I can say, okay, here's the formula. You're all set, right? Go out and do it, right? But, but it's, it, there's a, it's a work in progress. It's always a work in progress. And that work in progress always comes to fruition and culmination in this present moment. It's not something that's going to happen. Someday you're going to walk towards it, and someday you're just going to kind of land in it, right? And you'll be perfectly equanimous and have total tolerance and patience with every single being that you meet, right? It's in this moment that it's possible, and you may fall off of it in the next moment, but then the moment after that, it's possible again. So that in in this moment, can you challenge yourself to be the Buddha? Can you be the Buddha right here and right now with this being in front of you with whom you have no patience whatsoever with with their political persuasion? Can you be the Buddha right here and now? Manual. Um, just an extension to the question on beliefs. Um, to, to a certain extent, I was thinking that um, beliefs are certain things we do, like, you know, bowing, etc., or putting our hands together, etc., are um, symbolics. They are things I can do without any meaning, or I can abstain and have um, you know the same quality of, of what what the purpose of it is um, now in terms of judgment on how I decide what what is and what isn't um, an empty gesture um, how do I cultivate that assessment um, going forward as as I develop. How have you done it up to now? Um, it's just a silent decision so far. Yeah, so your own wisdom. Yeah, well I don't mm-hmm. want it to develop into a little ego arrogance um, mm-hmm. going forward. So. so you know, one of the things that's happened over time um, in our, especially in our tradition, because I think in the tr- in the Tibetan tradition, and in the Zen tradition, it's it's quite formalized. You know, all of the um, the different ways of of sacred action is what I call it. it the ways of um, of paying homage or expressing refuge or taking refuge or um, the traditional ways of expressing sacredness in our lives has really, in, in a lot of ways, other than in the monastic tradition, in our tradition, part of our tradition, has really disappeared. And I think, it, in a way, it's a shame because, because it's necessary, I think, in our human life. And it goes back to the question of prayer and, and, and the question of belief and all of that, and it's interesting that we're having those questions tonight, in a night that is so um, is so worldly in a way. And election night is a very worldly thing, um, and but yet it has disappeared from our tra- from our lay tradition, and I think to our detriment. Uh, and so, 
it's helpful uh, to find a way in for yourself and to find what is comfortable for you and what's not comfortable for you and to, to not take on anything that you don't feel is comfortable but yet allow yourself to grow into what might be helpful as a basis for um, expressing the sacred in your own life. Because there is no such thing as a place that's unsacred. There are only desecrated places. There are sacred places and desecrated places. There is no place in this world that is unsacred. And it's, and all of these, every place that you go is sacred if you feel that sacredness inside your own self, right? And so to find ways of supporting that, of allowing that to grow, of becoming that, being that, never mind becoming, but being a sacred being, which you already are, finding that in yourself, then it's not as if there is some cognitive decision that has to be made. People ask me why I bow, for instance, because it's not really a... Some people bow, but not many in our tradition. And I started bowing not because I decided I was going to bow, but because when I was in Asia and everybody around me was bowing and, and something moved in me, I found myself on the floor bowing. And when I found myself on the floor bowing, I, I understood the sacredness of it. And when I understood the sacredness of it, I wanted to keep doing it. And because what it did is it marked the sacredness not only in a place like this, but in all of my life. Right? And so the ability to, um, to express the sacred in all aspects of your life comes from uh, how you express the sacred in your daily practice. So it's not as if you have to make some kind of judgment, well, I'll do this, but I won't do that. See what happens if you open your mind and your heart and your body to the ability to express what is sacred. Right? in your everyday life. Not wait, for, not wait to go to a meditation place or to a church or to a synagogue or anywhere else. But what is sacred right here and now? I know that when I bow, it marks something. It marks an entry, an entryway into the sacred. And I can feel it. And, I can, and when we take our shoes off, we take our shoes off it's an Asian tradition to take our shoes off before we come into a place to meditate. But then what I learned when I was in Asia is that we're leaving the dirt of outside, outside. And there's something about that, there's th about the symbolism of that, that, that there is actually a way of letting go of, of the dirt of our lives, right? It's not that outside is dirty and in here is clean, but we're letting go of something and we're marking this place as a place where we can do that, where we can actually let go into, into some um, understanding of purity. And it's not, it's not a kind of puritanical purity, but it's a purified purity, if you understand what I mean. So that our practice is a purification practice that allows us to enter into a sacred place of purity. And, it, and, it's, and it's not saying that out there is not pure, but it's actually going back out into the world with that purified mind and purified heart and contributing to the purity of the whole world, not separating it. Thank you. You're welcome. So I'd like to end here. I'll just take one, la just one short one, okay. Hi, my name's Patricia. Hi, Patricia. I have a quick question. Um, recently, I was talking. Could you do this? Oh, thank okay. you. Okay. Um, I think it's related to what we were talking about: a prayer, judgment. So, um, I recently was talking to somebody that um, 
he is Christian and his beliefs are beautiful and um, I never pray in my life so but I start doing some meditation which I haven't continued much <laughs> that's on my back confession yeah it's good for the soul and I was falling asleep today and I oh, apologize dear. for that I'm being honest. <laughs> well, besides that, um, so that person, um, I was talking about meditation, and he was telling me, he just said something like, well, that's like, like, that's like uh, praying. And um, it really made me very confused because I never pray in my life, and I wasn't raised uh, under any, following any religion, and I find my own path, and I, I don't think I follow anything specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is, I, I tried to explain him what I thought the difference was, but I wasn't completely sure. So you're trying I, to, you're trying to uh, pin me down, are you? No. To an answer to the difference? No, I just want to think what you think. My thought, I can tell you what I thought without judging anything, you know, anybody that prays or anything. I just thought that it was a small difference in between what we were doing. I was looking to the answers or feeling safe or center inside of me or something in me. And the other person was looking at maybe outside. And then I got confused because I never prayed before. So <laughs> I wanted to hear what you think about I think a lot of things, and probably don't have a lot of time to tell you a lot of the things I think. Um, But what I can say is that any time I've ever tried to answer questions about prayer, I've gotten into trouble. (laughs) That I had a a question from a rabbi in a meta retreat that I was teaching, and he was really angry at me when I was finished answering the question. So I've learned not to answer that question. However, um, I'll try to answer the question and get myself into trouble again. Well, I have to tell you that right now I'm in trouble with that person. <laughs> yeah. Because we have well, that's exact, but that's the point. That's the point, is that somehow it's also related to what Angela is talking about with belief, that when we start to compare our beliefs, it's bound to be trouble, right? And so, you know, which, is, which goes back also to the question about discernment and judgment, is that instead of trying to understand the differences, why don't we understand the commonalities, right? So meditation is not prayer. I'll start there. I'll say something really clear. Meditation is the cultivation of the mind and heart of wisdom and kindness, Okay. So it's not prayer. And if we, but is there anybody here who's never prayed? Put your hand up if you've never prayed. Okay, so there's only one person in the room who's never prayed. Two people, where's the other person? So there are two people who've never prayed. So what does that say about a bunch of Buddhists, right? It, it says that we're all human And we've all found at some point something that seemed beyond us, something that seemed beyond our capability to resolve or to solve. So we've turned to something, to some something large, as as this gentleman was saying, something larger than who we think we are. This goes into all kinds of Um, interesting uh, um, thoughts and ideas about who we think we are and how separate we think we are from the universe and how much a part of the universe we think we are and whether or not we really understand the power of our own hearts. So we have limited language to describe that. We have limited language to describe our relationship 
to that power, our relationship to the universe that we inhabit. We have limited concepts, we have limited ideas, and we have limited language. And so our attempts at trying to fit different pieces of philosophies and religions into each other are always going to end up rubbing. So instead of trying to, under, to, to fit what you do here into the uh, conceptual framework of some other religion, to try to understand what you're doing clearly, qua this particular practice, not in the, not in the context of some other uh, conceptual set of beliefs or ideas, all of which have their own internal logic and their own internal grace. And, and it, it's important because I think that's what we also do in a Western context is we try to take a little bit from this and a little bit from that and a little bit, a little bit of chanting and a little bit of Hinduism and a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of this and, little, and we try to meld them together and then we wind up with a potpourri that doesn't really mean much, right? Rather than trying to understand the system within which you're working and its own internal beauty and grace and logic and understanding and wisdom and compassion and doing that and seeing, as we were saying with Angela, seeing if that, how that is for you. Does that, does that really move you from suffering to the end of suffering? Which is all that we're talking about. <laughs> all that we're talking about. The end of suffering, no big deal, right? The, the complete end of suffering. That's what we're talking about. And when we're talking about that, we're, if, you tr if you try to fit it into some other framework, it's not gonna work. So if you try to understand meditation in the framework of prayer, it, you'll find some similarities, you'll find some differences, but you really won't quite know where you are. So um, if you want to have a conversation with somebody about their beliefs, that's beautiful so that you can understand where they're coming from. And then to be clear about what it is you're doing, to be clear about your own understanding and the limits of your own understanding so that you can express clearly what it is to yourself first. So truthfulness applies first to you and then to the world. Because first we have to admit to ourselves who we are, what we're doing, and why we're doing it. And that truthfulness, once we have it, and that clarity, then it's possible to express it to someone else. But that means that we study, we reflect, we listen, we practice, and maybe we don't talk about it for a year until we really get some clarity about what we're doing here. Right, but did, I have problems after all these years. Sometimes, you know, I'll be at a dinner party or something, and somebody wants to tell me, "What do you do?" Uh, it's a lovely question, right? It's a very Western question. I don't answer that anymore. I say, "Oh, a lot of things." <laughs> right? Yeah, because you because it's not it's not possible. To, to in, in that kind of context to explain something and, and we try to we try to take some kind of essence out of it and it doesn't it doesn't translate. So thank you. So I was trying to end early so that you could all go home and get your election results. Right? <laughs> but I wasn't successful. Sorry. Hmm? Sorry? I'm sure they're not ready yet. Well, one can only hope that they're ready already, right? So um, let's, let's close with some uh, meta for ourselves, some meta for uh, our city, our community, our country, and our world, sending our loving kindness, our wishes for 
all beings without exception, all beings in this room, beyond this room in this city, beyond this city, throughout this state, to the neighboring states, all the people in New Jersey who have been um, upended and devastated by this, these events, all of the people in Staten Island, in Rockaway, all of the people who have really been so deeply harmed by the events of this week. And beyond all of the beings who live in circumstances that are constantly, constantly um, oppressive and difficult. People who have no food to eat or uh, shelter or medicine in our country, in our world. We pray for the safety of all beings everywhere, without exception. We, we send our wishes, our heartfelt, deeply felt wishes for the happiness and the peace of all beings everywhere. Send our wishes for the health of all beings and that all beings live with ease, without struggle. And right now, if there's anyone that you know who is particularly in need of good wishes and support, please feel free to say their names. So for all these beings, we bring them into our hearts and we also send them our wishes for safety, for peace and happiness, for health and for ease. And we dedicate the merits of our practice this evening and all of our Dharma discussion and our inquiry and our reflection, we dedicate to the well-being and the happiness of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.